John Greenman, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, by Mark Twain. Preface and Chapter One. Preface. The ungentle laws and customs touched upon in this tale are historical, and the episodes which are used to illustrate them are also historical. It is not pretended that these laws and customs existed in England in the sixth century. No, it is only pretended that inasmuch as they existed in the English and other civilizations of far later times, it is safe to consider that it is no libel upon the sixth century to suppose them to have been in practice in that day also. One is quite justified in inferring that whatever one of these laws or customs was lacking in that remote time, its place was competently filled by a worse one. The question as to whether there is such a thing as divine right of kings is not settled in this book. It was found too difficult. That the executive head of a nation should be a person of lofty character and extraordinary ability was manifest and indisputable. That none but the deity could select that head unerringly was also manifest and indisputable. That the deity ought to make that selection then was likewise manifest and indisputable. Consequently, that he does make it as claimed was an unavoidable deduction. I mean, until the author of this book encountered the Pompadour and Lady Castlemaine and some other executive heads of that kind, these were found so difficult to work into the scheme that it was judged better to take the other tack in this book, which must be issued this fall, and then go into training and settle the question in another book. It is, of course, a thing which ought to be settled, and I am not going to have anything particular to do next winter anyway. Mark Twain, Hartford, July 21st, 1889. A Word of Explanation It was in Warwick Castle that I came across the curious stranger whom I am going to talk about. He attracted me by three things—his candid simplicity, his marvelous familiarity with ancient armor, and the restfulness of his company, for he did all the talking. We fell together, as modest people will, in the tale of the herd that was being shown through, and he at once began to say things which interested me. As he talked along, softly, pleasantly, flowingly, he seemed to drift away imperceptibly out of this world and time, and into some remote era and old forgotten country and so he gradually wove such a spell about me that I seemed to move among the specters and shadows and dust and mold of a gray antiquity, holding speech with a relic of it, exactly as I would speak of my nearest personal friends or enemies or my most familiar neighbors he spoke of Sir Bedivere, Sir Bors de Granis, Sir Lancelot of the Lake, Sir Galahad, and all the other great names of the table round, and how old, old, unspeakably old, and faded, and dry, and musty, and ancient he came to look as he went on. Presently he turned to me and said, just as one might speak of the weather, or any other common matter, "'You know about transmigration of souls. Do you know about transposition of epochs, and bodies?' I said I had not heard of it. He was so little interested, just as when people speak of the weather, that he did not notice whether I made him any answer or not. 
There was half a moment of silence, immediately interrupted by the droning voice of the salaried Cicerone. Ancient hauberk, date of the sixth century, time of King Arthur and the Round Table, said to have belonged to the knight Sir Sagramor le Desiru. Observe the round hole through the chain mail in the left breast. Can't be accounted for. Supposed to have been done with a bullet since invention of firearms, perhaps maliciously by Cromwell's soldiers. My acquaintance smiled, not a modern smile, but one that must have gone out of general use many, many centuries ago, and muttered, apparently to himself, "'Wit ye well, I saw it done!' Then, after a pause, added, "'I did it myself!' By the time I had recovered from the electric surprise of this remark, he was gone. All that evening I sat by my fire at the Warwick Arms, steeped in a dream of the olden time, while the rain beat upon the windows, and the wind roared about the eaves and corners. From time to time I dipped into old Sir Thomas Mallory's enchanting book, and fed at its rich feast of prodigies and adventures, breathed in the fragrance of its obsolete names, and dreamed again. Midnight being come at length, I read another tale, for a nightcap, this which here follows to wit. How Sir Lancelot slew two giants, and made a castle free. Anon withal came there upon him two great giants well armed, all save the heads, with two horrible clubs in their hands. Sir Lancelot put his shield afore him, and put the stroke away of the one giant, and with his sword he clave his head asunder. When his fellow saw that, he ran away as he were wood, demented, for fear of the horrible strokes, and Sir Lancelot after him, with all his might, and smote him on the shoulder, and clave him to the middle. Then Sir Lancelot went into the hall, and there came afore him threescore ladies and damsels, and all kneeled unto him, and thanked God and him of their deliverance. For, sir, said they, the most part of us have been here this seven year their prisoners, and we have worked all manner of silk-works for our meat, and we are all great gentlewomen born, and blessed be the time, knight, that ever thou wert born. For thou hast done the most worship that ever did knight in the world. That will we bear record, and we all pray you to tell us your name, that we may tell our friends who delivered us out of prison. Fair damsels, he said, my name is Sir Lancelot du Lake. And so he departed from them, and betaught them unto God. And then he mounted unto his horse, and rode into many strange and wild countries, and through many waters and valleys, and evil was he lodged. And at the last by fortune him happened against a knight to come to a fair courtelage and therein he found an old gentlewoman that lodged him with a good will, and there he had good cheer for him and his horse. And when time was, his host brought him into a fair garret over the gate to his bed. There Sir Lancelot unarmed him, and set his harness by him, and went to bed, and anon he fell on sleep. So soon after there came one on horseback, and knocked at the gate in great haste, and when Sir Lancelot heard this, he rose up, and looked out at the window, and saw by the moonlight three knights come riding after that one man, and all three lashed on him at once with swords, and that one knight turned on them knightly again, and defended him. 
truly said sir lancelot yonder one knight shall i help for it were shame for me to see three knights on one and if he be slain i am partner of his death and therewith he took his harness and went out at a window by a sheet down to the four knights and then sir lancelot said on high turn you knights unto me and leave your fighting with that knight and then they all three left sir kay and turned unto sir lancelot and there began great battle for they alight all three and strake many strokes at sir lancelot and assailed him on every side then sir kay dressed him for to have holpen sir lancelot nay sir said he i will none of your help therefore as ye will have my help let me alone with them sir kay for the pleasure of the knight suffered him for to do his will and so stood aside and then anon within six strokes sir lancelot had stricken them to the earth and then they all three cried sir knight we yield us unto you as man of might matchless as to that said sir lancelot i will not take your yielding unto me but so that ye yield you unto sir kay the seneschal on that covenant i will save your lives and else not fair knight said they that were we loath to do for as for sir kay we chased him hither and had overcome him had ye not been therefore to yield us unto him it were no reason well as to that said sir lancelot advise you well for ye may choose whether ye will die or live for an ye be yielden it shall be unto sir kay fair knight then they said in saving our lives we will do as thou commandest then shall ye said sir lancelot on whitsunday next coming go unto the court of king arthur and there shall ye yield you unto queen guinevere and put you all three in her grace and mercy and say that sir kay sent you thither to be her prisoners on the morn sir lancelot arose early and left sir kay sleeping and sir lancelot took sir kay's armor and his shield and armed him and so he went to the stable and took his horse and took his leave of his host and so he departed then soon after arose sir kay and missed sir lancelot and then he espied that he had his armor and his horse now by my faith i know well that he will grieve some of the court of king arthur for on him knights will be bold and deem that it is i and that will beguile them and because of his armor and shield i am sure i shall ride in peace and then soon after departed sir kay and thanked his host as i laid the book down there was a knock at the door and my stranger came in i gave him a pipe and a chair and made him welcome i also comforted him with a hot scotch whisky gave him another one then still another hoping always for his story after a fourth persuader he drifted into himself and in a quite simple and natural way the stranger's history i am an american i was born and reared in hartford in the state of connecticut anyway just over the river in the country so i am a yankee of the yankees and practical yes and nearly barren of sentiment i suppose or poetry in other words my father was a blacksmith my uncle was a horse doctor and i was both along at first then i went over to the great arms factory and learned my real trade learned all there was to it learned to make everything guns revolvers cannon boilers engines all sorts of labor-saving machinery why i could make anything a body wanted anything in the world it didn't make any difference what 
and if there wasn't any quick new-fangled way to make a thing, I could invent one, and do it as easy as rolling off a log. I became head superintendent, had a couple of thousand men under me. Well, a man like that is a man that is full of fight. That goes without saying. With a couple of thousand rough men under one, one has plenty of that sort of amusement. I had, anyway. At last I met my match, and I got my dose. It was during a misunderstanding conducted with crowbars with a fellow we used to call Hercules. He laid me out with a crusher alongside the head that made everything crack, and seemed to spring every joint in my skull, and made it overlap its neighbor. Then the world went out in darkness, and I didn't feel anything more, and didn't know anything at all, at least for a while. When I came to again, I was sitting under an oak tree on the grass, with a whole beautiful and broad country landscape all to myself, nearly. Not entirely, for there was a fellow on a horse looking down at me, a fellow fresh out of a picture-book. He was in old-time iron armor from head to heel, with a helmet on his head the shape of a nail-keg with slits in it, and he had a shield, and a sword, and a prodigious spear, and his horse had armor on too and a steel-horn projecting from his forehead, and gorgeous red and green silk trappings that hung down all around him like a bed-quilt, nearly to the ground. "'Fair sir, will ye just?' said this fellow. "'Will I which? Will ye try a passage of arms for land or lady or for—' "'What are you giving me?' I said. "'Get along back to your circus, or I'll report you.' Now, what does this man do but fall back a couple of hundred yards, and then come rushing at me as hard as he could tear, with his nail-keg bent down nearly to his horse's neck, and his long spear pointed straight ahead? I saw he meant business, so I was up the tree when he arrived. He allowed that I was his property, the captive of his spear. There was argument on his side, and the bulk of the advantage, so I judged it best to humor him. We fixed up an agreement whereby I was to go with him, and— he was not to hurt me. I came down, and we started away, I walking by the side of his horse. We marched comfortably along, through glades and over brooks, which I could not remember to have seen before, which puzzled me and made me wonder, and yet we did not come to any circus or sign of a circus, so I gave up the idea of a circus, and concluded he was from an asylum. But we never came to an asylum, so I was up a stump as you may say. I asked him how far we were from Hartford. He said he had never heard of the place, which I took to be a lie, but allowed it to go at that. At the end of an hour we saw a far-away town sleeping in a valley by a winding river, and beyond it on a hill a vast gray fortress with towers and turrets, the first I had ever seen out of a picture. "'Bridgeport?' said I, pointing. "'Camelot!' said he. My stranger had been showing signs of sleepiness. He caught himself nodding now, and smiled one of those pathetic, obsolete smiles of his, and said, "'I find I can't go on, but come with me. I've got it all written out, and you can read it, if you like.' In his chamber he said, First I kept a journal. Then, by and by, after years, I took the journal and turned it into a book. How long ago that was!' He handed me his manuscript, and pointed out the place where I should begin. "'Begin here. I've already told you what goes before.' He was steeped in drowsiness by this time. As I went out at his door I heard him murmur sleepily, "'Give you good den, fair sir.' 
I sat down by my fire and examined my treasure. The first part of it, the great bulk of it, was parchment and yellow with age. I scanned a leaf particularly and saw that it was a palimpsest. Under the old dim writing of the Yankee historian appeared traces of a penmanship which was older and dimmer still, Latin words and sentences, fragments from old monkish legends, evidently. I turned to the place indicated by my stranger and began to read as follows. THE TALE OF THE LOST LAND CHAPTER One, CAMELOT CAMELOT, CAMELOT, said I to myself. I don't seem to remember hearing of it before. Name of the asylum, likely. It was a soft, reposeful summer landscape, as lovely as a dream, and as lonesome as Sunday. The air was full of the smell of flowers, and the buzzing of insects, and the twittering of birds, and there were no people, no wagons, there was no stir of life, nothing going on. The road was mainly a winding path with hoof-prints in it, and now and then a faint trace of wheels on either side in the grass wheels that apparently had a tire as broad as one's hand. Presently a fair slip of a girl, about ten years old, with a cataract of golden hair streaming down over her shoulders, came along. Around her head she wore a hoop of flame-red poppies. It was as sweet an outfit as I ever saw, what there was of it. She walked indolently along with a mind at rest, its peace reflected in her innocent face. The circus-man paid no attention to her, didn't even seem to see her, and she, she was no more startled at his fantastic make-up than if she was used to his like every day of her life. She was going by as indifferently as she might have gone by a couple of cows, but when she happened to notice me, then there was a change. Up went her hands, and she was turned to stone. Her mouth dropped open, her eyes stared wide and timorously, she was the picture of astonished curiosity touched with fear. And there she stood gazing, in a sort of stupefied fascination, till we turned a corner of the wood and were lost to her view. That she should be startled at me instead of at the other man was too many for me. I couldn't make head or tail of it and that she should seem to consider me a spectacle and totally overlook her own merits in that respect was another puzzling thing and a display of magnanimity too that was surprising in one so young there was food for thought here i moved along as one in a dream as we approached the town signs of life began to appear at intervals we passed a wretched cabin with a thatched roof, and about it small fields and garden patches in an indifferent state of cultivation. There were people, too, brawny men with long, coarse, uncombed hair that hung down over their faces and made them look like animals. They and the women, as a rule, wore a coarse tow-linen robe that came well below the knee, and a rude sort of sandal, and many wore an iron collar. The small boys and girls were always naked, but nobody seemed to know it. All of these people stared at me, talked about me, ran into the huts and fetched out their families to gape at me, and nobody ever noticed that other fellow, except to make him humble salutation and get no response for their pains. In the town were some substantial windowless houses of stone scattered among a wilderness of thatched cabins. The streets were mere crooked alleys and unpaved. Troops of dogs and nude children played in the sun, and made life and noise. 
hogs roamed and rooted contentedly about and one of them lay in a reeking wallow in the middle of the main thoroughfare and suckled her family presently there was a distant blare of military music it came nearer still nearer and soon a noble cavalcade wound into view glorious with plumed helmets and flashing mail and flaunting banners and rich doublets and horse-cloths and gilded spearheads and through the muck and swine and naked brats and joyous dogs and shabby huts it took its gallant way and in its wake we followed followed through one winding alley and then another and climbing always climbing till at last we gained the breezy height where the huge castle stood there was an exchange of bugle blasts then a parley from the walls where men-at-arms in hauberk and morion marched back and forth with halbert at shoulder under flapping banners with the rude figure of a dragon displayed upon them and then the great gates were flung open the drawbridge was lowered and the head of the cavalcade swept forward under the frowning arches and we following soon found ourselves in a great paved court with towers and turrets stretching up into the blue air on all four sides and all about us the dismount was going on and much greeting and ceremony and running to and fro and a gay display of moving and intermingling colors and an altogether pleasant stir and noise and confusion end of preface and chapter one chapter two king arthur's court the moment i got a chance i slipped aside privately and touched an ancient common-looking man on the shoulder and said in an insinuating confidential way friend do me a kindness do you belong to the asylum or are you just on a visit or something like that he looked me over stupidly and said marry fair sir me seemeth that will do i said i reckon you are a patient i moved away cogitating and at the same time keeping an eye out for any chance passenger in his right mind that might come along and give me some light i judged i had found one presently so i drew him aside and said in his ear if i could see the head keeper a minute only just a minute prithee do not let me let you what hinder me then if the word please thee better then he went on to say he was an undercook and could not stop to gossip though he would like it another time for it would comfort his very liver to know where i got my clothes as he started away he pointed and said yonder was one who was idle enough for my purpose and was seeking me besides no doubt this was an airy slim boy in shrimp-colored tights that made him look like a forked carrot the rest of his gear was blue silk and dainty laces and ruffles and he had long yellow curls and wore a plumed pink satin cap tilted complacently over his ear by his look he was good-natured by his gait he was satisfied with himself he was pretty enough to frame he arrived looked me over with a smiling and impudent curiosity said he had come for me and informed me that he was a page go long i said you ain't more than a paragraph it was pretty severe but i was nettled however it never fazed him he didn't appear to know he was hurt he began to talk and laugh in happy thoughtless boyish fashion as we walked along and made himself old friends with me at once asked me all sorts of questions about myself and about my clothes but never waited for an answer 
always chattered straight ahead, as if he didn't know he had asked a question and wasn't expecting any reply, until at last he happened to mention that he was born in the beginning of the year 513. It made the cold chills creep over me. I stopped and said, a little faintly, "'Maybe I didn't hear you just right. Say it again, and say it slow. What year was it?' Five-thirteen. Five-thirteen. You don't look it. Come, my boy, I am a stranger and friendless. Be honest and honorable with me. Are you in your right mind? He said he was. Are these other people in their right minds? He said they were. And this isn't an asylum? I mean, it isn't a place where they cure crazy people? He said it wasn't. Well, then, I said, either i am a lunatic or something just as awful has happened now tell me honest and true where am i in king arthur's court i waited a minute to let that idea shudder its way home and then said and according to your notions what year is it now five twenty eight nineteenth of june i felt a mournful sinking at the heart and muttered I shall never see my friends again, never, never again. They will not be born for more than thirteen hundred years yet. I seemed to believe the boy. I didn't know why. Something in me seemed to believe him. My consciousness, as you may say. But my reason didn't. My reason straightway began to clamor. That was natural. I didn't know how to go about satisfying it because I knew that the testimony of men wouldn't serve. My reason would say they were lunatics and throw out their evidence. But all of a sudden I stumbled on the very thing, just by luck. I knew that the only total eclipse of the sun in the first half of the sixth century occurred on the 21st of June, A.D. 528, O.S., and began three minutes after twelve noon. I also knew that no total eclipse of the sun was due in what to me was the present year, i.e., 1879. So if I could keep my anxiety and curiosity from eating the heart out of me for forty-eight hours, I should then find out for certain whether this boy was telling me the truth or not. Wherefore, being a practical Connecticut man, I now shoved this whole problem clear out of my mind till its appointed day and hour should come, in order that I might turn all my attention to the circumstances of the present moment, and be alert and ready to make the most out of them that could be made. One thing at a time is my motto, and just play that thing for all it is worth, even if it's only two pair and a jack. I made up my mind to two things. If it was still the nineteenth century and I was among lunatics and couldn't get away, I would presently boss that asylum, or know the reason why, and if, on the other hand, it was really the sixth century all right, I didn't want any softer thing. I would boss the whole country inside of three months, for I judged I would have the start of the best educated man in the kingdom by a matter of thirteen hundred years and upward. I'm not a man to waste time after my mind's made up, and there's work on hand, so I said to the page, now, Clarence, my boy, if that might happen to be your name, I'll get you to post me up a little, if you don't mind. What is the name of that apparition that brought me here? My master and thine? That is the good knight and great lord Sir Kay, the seneschal, foster-brother to our liege the king. Very good. 
Go on, tell me everything.' He made a long story of it, but the part that had immediate interest for me was this. He said I was Sir Kay's prisoner, and that in the due course of custom I would be flung into a dungeon and left there on scant commons until my friends ransomed me, unless I chanced to rot first. I saw that the last chance had the best show, but I didn't waste any bother about that. Time was too precious. The page said further that dinner was about ended in the great hall by this time, and that as soon as the sociability and the heavy drinking should begin, Sir Kay would have me in, and exhibit me before King Arthur and his illustrious knights seated at the table round, and would brag about his exploit in capturing me, and would probably exaggerate the facts a little, but it wouldn't be good form for me to correct him, and not over safe either. And when I was done being exhibited, then ho for the dungeon! But he, Clarence, would find a way to come and see me every now and then, and cheer me up, and help me get word to my friends. Get word to my friends. I thanked him, I couldn't do less, and about this time a lackey came to say I was wanted, so Clarence led me in, and took me off to one side and sat down by me. Well, it was a curious kind of spectacle, and interesting. It was an immense place, and rather naked, yes, and full of loud contrasts. It was very, very lofty, so lofty that the banners depending from the arched beams and girders away up there floated in a sort of twilight. There was a stone-railed gallery at each end, high up, with musicians in the one, and women clothed in stunning colors in the other. The floor was of big stone flags laid in black and white squares, rather battered by age and use, and needing repair. As to ornament, there wasn't any, strictly speaking, though on the walls hung some huge tapestries which were probably taxed as works of art. Battle-pieces they were, with horses shaped like those with children cut out of paper or created in gingerbread with men on them in scale armor whose scales are represented by round holes, so that the man's coat looks as if it had been done with a biscuit-punch. There was a fireplace big enough to camp in, and its projecting sides and hood of carved and pillared stonework had the look of a cathedral door. Along the walls stood men-at-arms, in breastplate and morion, with halberts for their only weapon, rigid as statues. And that is what they looked like. In the middle of this groined and vaulted public square was an oaken table which they called the Table Round. It was as large as a circus ring, and around it sat a great company of men dressed in such various and splendid colors that it hurt one's eyes to look at them. They wore their plumed hats right along, except that whenever one addressed himself directly to the king, he lifted his hat a trifle, just as he was beginning his remark. Mainly they were drinking, from entire ox-horns, but a few were still munching bread or gnawing beef-bones. There was about an average of two dogs to one man, and these sat in expectant attitudes till a spent bone was flung to them, and then they went for it by brigades and divisions, with a rush, and there ensued a fight which filled the prospect with a tumultuous chaos of plunging heads and bodies and flashing tails and the storm of howlings and barkings deafened all speech for the time. But that was no matter, for the dog-fight was always a bigger interest anyway. The men rose sometimes to observe it the better, and bet on it, and the ladies and the musicians stretched themselves out over their balusters with the same object, and all broke into delighted ejaculations from time to time. In the end 
the winning dog stretched himself out comfortably with his bone between his paws, and proceeded to growl over it and gnaw it and grease the floor with it, just as fifty others were already doing, and the rest of the court resumed their previous industries and entertainments. As a rule the speech and behavior of these people were gracious and courtly, and I noticed that they were good and serious listeners when anybody was telling anything—I mean in a dog-fightless interval, and plainly, too, they were a childlike and innocent lot, telling lies of the stateliest pattern with a most gentle and winning naivety, and ready and willing to listen to anybody else's lie, and believe it, too. It was hard to associate them with anything cruel or dreadful, and yet they dealt in tales of blood and suffering with a guileless relish that made me almost forget to shudder. I was not the only prisoner present. There were twenty or more. Poor devils, many of them were maimed, hacked, carved in a frightful way, and their hair, their faces, their clothing were caked with black and stiffened drenchings of blood. They were suffering sharp physical pain, of course, and weariness, and hunger and thirst, no doubt, and at least none had given them the comfort of a wash, or even the poor charity of a lotion for their wounds. Yet you never heard them utter a moan or groan, or saw them show any sign of restlessness, or any disposition to complain. The thought was forced upon me. The rascals! They have served other people so in their day. It being their own turn now, they were not expecting any better treatment than this. So their philosophical bearing is not an outcome of mental training, intellectual fortitude, reasoning. It is mere animal training. They are white Indians. End of chapter 2 A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain Chapter 3 Knights of the Table Round Mainly the round-table talk was monologues, narrative accounts of the adventures in which these prisoners were captured, and their friends and backers killed, and stripped of their steeds and armor. As a general thing, as far as I could make out, these murderous adventures were not forays undertaken to avenge injuries, nor to settle old disputes or sudden fallings out. No, as a rule they were simply duels between strangers, duels between people who had never even been introduced to each other, and between whom existed no cause of offense whatever. Many a time I had seen a couple of boys, strangers, meet by chance, and say simultaneously, I can lick you, and go at it on the spot. But I had always imagined until now that that sort of thing belonged to children only, and was a sign and mark of childhood. But here were these big boobies sticking to it and taking pride in it clear up unto full age and beyond. Yet there was something very engaging about these great simple-hearted creatures, something attractive and lovable. There did not seem to be brains enough in the entire nursery, so to speak, to bait a fish-hook with, but you didn't seem to mind that after a little, because you soon saw that brains were not needed in a society like that, and indeed would have marred it, hindered it, spoiled its symmetry, perhaps rendered its existence impossible. There was a fine manliness observable in almost every face, and in some a certain loftiness and sweetness that rebuked your belittling criticisms and stilled them. A most noble benignity and purity reposed in the countenance of him they called Sir Galahad, and likewise in the king's also, 
and there was majesty and greatness in the giant frame and high bearing of Sir Lancelot of the Lake. There was presently an incident which centred the general interest upon this Sir Lancelot. At a sign from a sort of master of ceremonies, six or eight of the prisoners rose, and came forward in a body, and knelt on the floor, and lifted up their hands toward the ladies' gallery, and begged the grace of a word with the Queen. The most conspicuously situated lady in that massed flower-bed of feminine show and finery inclined her head by way of assent, and then the spokesman of the prisoners delivered himself and his fellows into her hands for free pardon, ransom, captivity, or death, as she in her good pleasure might elect. And this, as he said, he was doing by command of Sir Kay the Seneschal, whose prisoners they were, he having vanquished them by his single might and prowess in sturdy conflict in the field. Surprise and astonishment flashed from face to face all over the house. The Queen's gratified smile faded out at the name of Sir Kay, and she looked disappointed, and the page whispered in my ear with an accent and manner expressive of extravagant derision, "'Sir Kay, forsooth! Oh, call me pet names, dearest, call me a marine! In twice a thousand years shall the unholy invention of man labor at odds to beget the fellow to this majestic lie!' Every eye was fastened with severe inquiry upon Sir Kay, but he was equal to the occasion. He got up and played his hand like a major, and took every trick. He said he would state the case exactly according to the facts. He would tell the simple, straightforward tale, without comment of his own. "'And then,' said he, "'if ye find glory and honour due, ye will give it unto him who is the mightiest man of his hands that ever bear shield or strake with sword in the ranks of Christian battle, even him that sitteth there.' And he pointed to Sir Launcelot. Ah, he fetched them! It was a rattling good stroke. Then he went on and told how Sir Launcelot, seeking adventures some brief time gone by, killed seven giants at one sweep of his sword, and set a hundred and forty-two captive maidens free, and then went further, still seeking adventures, and found him, Sir Kay, fighting a desperate fight against nine foreign knights, and straightway took the battle solely into his own hands, and conquered the nine and that night Sir Launcelot rose quietly, and dressed him in Sir Kay's armour, and took Sir Kay's horse, and gat him away into distant lands, and vanquished sixteen knights in one pitched battle, and thirty-four in another, and all these and the former nine he made to swear that about Whitsuntide they would ride to Arthur's court, and yield them to Queen Guinevere's hands as captives of Sir Kay the Seneschal, spoil of his knightly prowess and now here were these half-dozen, and the rest would be along as soon as they might be healed of their desperate wounds. Well, it was touching to see the Queen blush and smile, and look embarrassed and happy, and fling furtive glances at Sir Launcelot that would have got him shot in Arkansas to a dead certainty. Everybody praised the valour and magnanimity of Sir Launcelot, and as for me, I was perfectly amazed that one man, all by himself, should have been able to beat down and capture such battalions of practised fighters. I said as much to Clarence, but this mocking featherhead only said, "'And Sir Kay had had time to get another skin of sour wine into him. Ye had seen the account doubled.' I looked at the boy in sorrow, and as I looked I saw the cloud of a deep despondency settle upon his countenance. 
I followed the direction of his eye, and saw that a very old and white-bearded man, clothed in a flowing black gown, had risen and was standing at the table upon unsteady legs, and feebly swaying his ancient head, and surveying the company with his watery and wandering eye. The same suffering look that was in the page's face was observable in all the faces around, the look of dumb creatures who know that they must endure, and make no moan. "'Mary, we shall have it again,' sighed the boy. "'That same old weary tale that he hath told a thousand times in the same words, and that he will tell till he dieth, every time he hath gotten his barrel full, and feeleth his exaggeration mill a-working. Would God I had died, or I saw this day! Who is it? Merlin, the mighty liar and magician! Perdition singe him for the weariness he worketh with this one tale! But that men fear him for that he hath the storms and the lightnings, and all the devils that be in hell at his beck and call, they would have dug his entrails out this many years ago to get at that tale, and squelch it! He telleth it always in the third person, making believe he is too modest to glorify himself. Maledictions light upon him, misfortune be his dole. Good friend, prithee call me for evensong." The boy nestled himself upon my shoulder and pretended to go to sleep. The old man began his tale, and presently the lad was asleep in reality. So also were the dogs, and the court, the lackeys, and the files of men-at-arms. The droning voice droned on. A soft snoring arose on all sides, and supported it like a deep and subdued accompaniment of wind instruments. Some heads were bowed upon folded arms, some lay back with open mouths that issued unconscious music. The flies buzzed and bit unmolested, the rats swarmed softly out from a hundred holes, and pattered about, and made themselves at home everywhere. And one of them sat up like a squirrel on the king's head and held a bit of cheese in its hands, and nibbled it, and dribbled the crumbs in the king's face with naive and impudent irreverence. It was a tranquil scene, and restful to the weary eye and the jaded spirit. This was the old man's tale, he said. Right so the king and Merlin departed, and went until an hermit that was a good man and a great leech. So the hermit searched all his wounds, and gave him good salves. So the king was there three days, and then were his wounds well amended, that he might ride and go, and so departed. And as they rode, Arthur said, I have no sword, no force, footnote from M.T., no matter. Said Merlin, Hereby is a sword that shall be yours, and I may. So they rode till they came to a lake, the which was a fair water and broad, and in the midst of the lake Arthur was ware of an arm clothed in white samite, that held a fair sword in that hand. Lo, said Merlin, yonder is that sword that I spake of. With that they saw a damsel going upon the lake. What damsel is that? said Arthur. That is the lady of the lake, said Merlin and within that lake is a rock, and therein is as fair a place as any on earth, and richly be seen, and this damsel will come to you anon, and then speak ye fair to her that she will give you that sword. Anon withal came the damsel unto Arthur, and saluted him, and he her again. Damsel, said Arthur, what sword is that, that yonder the arm holdeth above the water? 
i would it were mine for i have no sword sir arthur king said the damsel that sword is mine and if ye will give me a gift when i ask it you ye shall have it by my faith said arthur i will give you what gift ye will ask well said the damsel go ye into yonder barge and row yourself to the sword and take it and the scabbard with you and i will ask my gift when i see my time so sir arthur and merlin alight and tied their horses to two trees and so they went into the ship and when they came to the sword that the hand held sir arthur took it up by the handles and took it with him and the arm and the hand went under the water and so they came unto the land and rode forth and then sir arthur saw a rich pavilion what signifieth yonder pavilion it is the knight's pavilion said merlin that ye fought with last sir pellinore but he is out he is not there he hath ado with a knight of yours that hight egleme and they have fought together and at the last egleme fled and else he had been dead and he hath chased him even to corleon and we shall meet with him anon in the highway that is well said said arthur now have i a sword now will i wage battle with him and be avenged on him sir ye shall not so said merlin for the knight is weary of fighting and chasing so that ye shall have no worship to have ado with him also he will not lightly be matched of one knight living and therefore it is my counsel let him pass for he shall do you good service in short time and his sons after his days also ye shall see that day in short space ye shall be right glad to give him your sister to wed when i see him i will do as ye advise said arthur then arthur looked on the sword and liked it passing well whether liketh you better said merlin the sword or the scabbard me liketh better the sword said arthur ye are more unwise said merlin for the scabbard is worth ten of the sword for while ye have the scabbard upon you ye shall never lose no blood be ye never so sore wounded therefore keep well the scabbard always with you so they rode into carleon and by the way they met with sir pellinore but merlin had done such a craft that pellinore saw not arthur and he passed by without any words i marvel said arthur that the knight would not speak sir said merlin he saw you not for an he had seen you ye had not lightly departed so they came unto carleon whereof his knights were passing glad and when they heard of his adventures they marvelled that he would jeopard his person so alone but all men of worship said it was merry to be under such a chieftain that would put his person in adventure as other poor knights did End of chapter three